fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. Who has been entrusted with that incredible responsibility? It is the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, and with me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. Great to be here, Dan. I am so excited. As you know, doing these old movies is just a lot of fun. I love old movies, Dan, and you know that. I'm a movie yep. historian. I go back to the silent era, but we're not going to go that far back. Uh, but before, we can't get too excited here. we got to introduce our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser, who is, again, broadcasting from an undisclosed location. Ben, how are you? And more importantly, where are you? I'm doing great, Dan, and I'm back on Old Terra, but deep underground. Oh, my goodness. So you're, you're in a perfect place to discuss Journey to the Center of the Earth, which is what we're going to talk about today. Now, this is the 1959 version, not that uh, weird 2008 version with Brendan Fraser. But this, so we're doing, I got a name for it, guys. You're going to love this name. I'm calling this our old school cinema summer. We're going to talk for a month about old movies. We've already done two. We're going to continue with two more. And Journey to the Center of the Earth is today's topic. But this was Denon's choice. Denon. What made you choose Journey to the Center of the Earth? So you have to understand how awesomely well they portray scientists, right? It may not be necessarily a great portrayal of science, though it's right. actually not that bad in places. Um, but the main character, I'll just say at the opening, um, to have him loved by everybody in the public just made me feel good. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, right. when he makes it very clear, <laughs> he's not going to force anyone to believe him just because he said so. He's only going to make people believe the evidence. And since he had none, he did not try and force the idea that there was this hollow center on everyone. And there was just pure science magic going on in this movie. Oh, that's, that's very true. Uh, so, Ben, this is your first time seeing it? I remember reading the like illustrated classic for kids back in the day, but I'd never seen the movie. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So this movie reminded me of... Jules, so this is Jules Verne. This is not only classic sci-fi cinema. This is classic sci-fi in general. Now you, Ben, you read an old illustrated classic. I had, I don't know if you guys remember Troll Books. They were, when you were in elementary school, they would send home this little checklist and you could buy books on there. I had 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I realized how similar these movies are is essentially investigating and exploring these areas of the earth were at the time were completely undiscovered. They, were, they, weren't, they weren't even researched at all we couldn't get down there which which is why they were so mysterious in a perfect setting for a movie like this but so this idea that the earth is hollow this was not that far-fetched of an idea at the time uh Dennett, i believe you kind of tipped me off to this it, was that true and if so how, how what was their mindset at the time well you you have to remember that it is through the 1800s mainly and early 1900s that we finally realized the earth is definitely solid so for Jules Verne, you know, the idea that it was hollow was probably starting to become a slightly crazy idea from the scientific point of view, but it was certainly not definitive yet. And one of the cool things, you mentioned it already, if you think about what he did, he picked three major places, space, the ocean, and the earth, and wrote stories about exploring them. And if you think about the 1800s, that's a lot kind of what it was. We had kind of explored the surface already, 
Mm-hmm. And and people were thinking, well, where's the next frontiers? And and even if the whole Earth wasn't hollow, like you said, actually just exploring how far you could go underground was an exciting idea all by itself. Um, so we're in that transition period, and so it's still it's still science fiction. And, and I think the best spirit of science fiction is it's speculating on something that at the time was not completely ruled out, though it was starting to be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you mentioned, going down into the center of the Earth requires, you know, it's very difficult and it requires a lot of equipment. And right off the bat, there's some pretty cool gadgets here. So, Ben, let's talk about some of the gadgets, just some of the quick ones that I thought were really interesting. So first, I know I'm going to get this name wrong. I wrote it down as the Ruhmkopf lamp. But this is basically, it's like a backpack winding flashlight. So nowadays you have these little emergency flashlights you can wind them up. It's pretty easy. But back then it was the size of a backpack and they were lugging it down there. Did that work? What was going on with the technology back then, turn of the century? I mean, the technology we all have, hopefully in our earthquake kits, you know, be prepared, especially if you're in California. Uh, Right. (laughs) uh, Of the hand-cranked flashlight, it's basically the same thing. Um, The hand-crank drives a generator, a dynamo, which is a coil, uh, a magnet and a coil of wire, that alternating current caused by the changing magnetic field can then be put stored in a battery and used to light a light bulb. I mean, it's it's a pretty basic thing that even back then they knew about. Um, they had batteries in the early 1800s. They had capacitors long before that. And light bulbs were just be- starting to become a thing in the uh, late 1800s. So all that technology existed back then. It wouldn't be as bright <laughs> as we see in the movie, right. but it certainly was around. Right. Now, what about the, so, so this is direct current, correct? Yeah. So this is like right up Edison's alley. Yes. This is, takes place in America, so. Yeah, so the interesting thing about that is from that we know there probably weren't integrated circuits or tubes to do a conversion from AC to DC. So we do know that they were probably using a brushed ge- uh, motor generator. Uh, because mm-hmm. that will output DC versus the AC of a brushless generator. Right. I, look, any generator I have, I think, Den and you probably fall into this camp as well. I got to have a brush on mine. What about you? Do you like your brushes? <laughs> well, I, I could go either way with the brushes. What I think is cool is this reminds me, did you ever buy those flashlights that you shake? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and generate electricity that nope. way? It, it's the back and forth version of the AC generator. So this is a crank where you spin a magnet in a coil. You can also just shake a magnet up and down in a coil and get a change in magnetic field. And they were transparent. You could see the inside workings. Um, they were really cool flashlights. They were fun to buy. We bought them for our kids. Uh, I mean, it was a lot of work, and they wouldn't hold a charge for very yeah. long. Um, but it was the same basic idea, which is human-powered charged flashlights. I, I remember the shake weight. I, I don't remember the shake flashlight. It, it's the same thing, just with a light bulb. Yeah, it's, it's not quite the shake weight. It's the same idea, sort of. <laughs> That's a little but, you know, similar. the other thing I like about this is think about, you know, how many, how much technology we have that's windable that, you know, we're wristwatch and stuff, that we went full battery, and now we're trying to do things where you can recharge them as you move. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. There's watches that and do that. And just use your motion, like watches that do that and things. So it, it, it's, 
I think it's a really clever technology, and it's a clever way to look at it. I liked it. I just love the fact that it was so big. I mean, yeah. they w they went down there with so much equipment and so little storage capacity. Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. some guy brought in a cordial. Well, <laughs> I have to say, Dan, it reminded me of my Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. <laughs> we never really kept track of yeah. where things were. Right. Oh, you weren't strict on your encumbrance, huh? We were not real strict. My brother's comment was, oh, you need a horse? I have one in my backpack here. Let me pull it out. <laughs> I'd really like to see where all the rations were. <laughs> yeah. And they were down there for like 200 plus days. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so here's the other gadget that's in this thing that I really like. There's a point where one of the guys disappears. He, he, goes, he goes off on his own and he yells and echo, it echoes through the hollow earth. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but it echoes right. through the caverns, right? They pull out some kind of device that looks like it has like a, like a collector, looks like an old school kind of telephone. And by the echo, they're able to locate him. I mean, echo location, almost literally. How feasible is that? Because my mind, when I think about geometry, it seems like that's actually possible. Is it? Well, I'll do the geometry first. It's in principle possible in the following sense that, yes, if you could completely, if you sort of knew what it was bouncing off of, you could backtrack it. And what, what struck me, though, very much is he said, from the last echo, we'll know where they are. And that, to me, was the point where I just kind of lost it just a little bit because it clearly had bounced multiple times. And the last echo will tell you the last thing it bounced off, not where the people are. So I kind of felt like, yeah, you can get your line of sight to the last thing. And you might even know maybe an angle of reflection, an incidence thing, where it came from before that, sort of. But since you can't visually see what it's hitting, it's a little problematic to backtrack it all the way in one step. I feel like if the sound kept going and you were fast enough and you tracked each segment of it, Dan, mm -hmm. you might be able to reconstruct it. That's what I'd be thinking. Okay. Ben, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the, princi the principles of sound location are, are obviously... Sound. <laughs> uh, I mean, sound. Echo, sound. Like a echo location, as you talked about, with like bats, like bats see using sound. And we kind of see using sound too. By having ears on either side of our head, we can tell if something's behind us, if it's to the right, if it's to the left, just by the difference in arrival time of the sound to our brain. We don't think about it. Our brain just knows when it hears someone, you know, yelling at you from the right that that person was off to the right. That's just how it works. And you can do the exact same thing with electronics. You can have multiple two inputs, a stereo input, and you can trace the, the location of the sound. Yeah, see, I, I thought of this, I thought this was possible, although a little weird, because I, I think of it like trick shots in pool. Yeah. You know, it's just bouncing off the walls. And I know that there's a little distortion. Uh, and what's the word I'm thinking of where it kind of like dissipates, you know, as it bounces off. Right. It's not a direct line like light on mirrors. But I feel like this is still pretty possible. And you guys are kind of saying, yeah, that. it's so possible. Surprising. But like Denon, the the multiple echo thing makes no sense. Okay. <laughs> all, right, all right. If they had already mapped out the cavern, I'd be much happier with yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Right. So if they were combining the multiple echoes with their GPS location map, yeah. 
then, then, it know, works. then yeah. they'd be better off. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, so now we've talked about they're in a cavernous location, right? So they're they're underground. And I think this is, you know, obviously we're aware now that this does not exist. You know, that, that an underground series of caverns couldn't possibly exist. But I like this idea of it basically being a series of caves because in some ways, at least in my mind, that seems feasible. So uh, let me ask you, I want to go to the physics first on this. If this were to be possible, how feasible is it to have an underground series of caves that can support the weight above it, but you can also travel inside of it? So I, I have to admit, I have a question here for, for I'm going to put Ben on the spot as the man of many calculations. Sure. And, and get his guess on this. And I, and I apologize, Ben and Dan, this was a late breaking thought I had mm-hmm. when All I right. realized that the <laughs> caverns were connected. The farther down you go, you're basically going to keep increasing the air pressure because as long as air is connected, the air pressure just goes up, right? Just like when you go underwater. So it occurred to me that despite my early thoughts that keeping the cavern structurally sound might be the problem, there might be enough pressure um, from just the air itself to keep the cavern structurally sound. Um, I become a little more concerned about the people getting crushed. Now, I'm mostly familiar with sort of water and how quickly, once you're going underwater, you know, how quickly that pressure goes. And I have to admit, I did not have time to sit down. I'm doing the rough physicist estimate. It gets bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But I haven't actually quantified it past that. So I'm curious. And now, Ben, obviously, I'm putting you in a spot. You may not have actually done the calculation yet. But I thought I'd throw it out there as a, if, is that a calculation worth doing even to see if the pressure got high enough? Mm, yeah, so... I'm gonna say no, <laughs> just off the, because because the the issue with just dismiss them out of hand. You're gonna just dismiss that. Well, out of the hand. issue with holding up a rock cavern with air pressure, especially if you go deep underground, is that I think like De- like Dan, you were talking about how the water pressure greatly increases as you go down. That's because it's the it's the mass of the water that causes all that pressure, and the rock has a lot of mass, way more than the air. To have an, an, an equivalent amount of air pressure will require the air to be so dense that I don't really think it's feasible. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking the rock supports some of its weight because it's structural some, and massive, sure. right? Yeah. And then the air is at a much higher pressure, so you've got a chance. It can certainly help. Yeah. But I think if it helps the rock, you kill the people. Yeah. I, I, if it's enough concern. to hold the rocks up, it's, there's going to be like so much air pressure that you you're not going to be able to breathe properly <laughs> so oh that's really interesting so you wouldn't be able to even you it'd be like forced into your lungs instead of you like pulling it into yeah your lungs, like right? our bodies just don't work under pressures like that well that brings up another interesting thing so the you know the, what would the, do the physics at all change the further you go down into the earth and closer to the center of the earth that's where the journey is right yeah. that's the, the end of it do the physics of, of the planet change as you go down, or at least the physics on you, I should say? Yes. So if we can ignore the pressure issues, as you get further down, gravity goes away. Because only gravity above your, the radius, basically, if you go down 100 miles uh, into the Earth's crust, well, actually, it's past the Earth's crust, now you're in the mantle, but... Uh, <laughs> If you go down that deep, all of the the mass of the Earth above you, above that 100-mile limit, doesn't matter at all for the gravity calculation anymore. So very quickly, the amount of gravity you feel 
drops. And when you get to the center of the Earth, if it was somehow hollow, you would feel no gravity. You would float, um, just like you're in the middle of outer space. Yeah, wow. and I think that's one of the coolest effects. The other side of this is, it, as long as you're outside the radius of the Earth's dynamo, mm-hmm. you're gonna, the magnetic field will increase. So magnetism, magnetism will become more important and gravity will become less important, which is kind of an interesting effect. You know, it, it's funny. I, I tried to pay attention and I, I lost track of how deep they kept claiming they were. Yeah. And I feel like if it was journey to deep within the earth where we've never been before, but not near the center, it would be a much more realistic movie. Yeah. <laughs> a much less snappy title, but a much more realistic exactly. movie. Exactly. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, it's it's strange how that, when you think about that, I mean, I, I can't even get my head around like it feeling like zero G at the center of the Earth. If you could withstand the heat. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's kind of weird. And in fact, you don't even have to get all the way to the center. As Ben said, if the Earth were truly hollow, uh, once you hit that hollow place, um, oh, yeah. All the mass above you cancels out, and the entire hollow sphere is uh, basically weightless. Yeah. Oh wow, that's that's mind blowing a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the other things we got to deal with here, right? So l- let's say we are down there. Let's say that the structures are re- being held. You, know, we have our little flashlights, but even back then, the flashlight bulbs are not that great. So how do, it's dark down there? I mean, this is real like cave dark. I think at one point they actually encounter some some fluorescent algae or bioluminescent algae. I thought this was really incredible because in New Zealand, there is actually a glowworm. Uh, it's A. luminosa. And basically, this thing is amazing. It has these, the larvae have these long webs on them that they use to catch food. And it glows with this beautiful blue glow. That's why they're called glowworms. So this actually is a real thing and could in some ways light their way almost like the moon would kind of, how it kind of lights the earth at night. I, I really like this. And, and I thought this was pretty realistic. Yeah. I, I thought that was great physics. I agree with you, Dan. One of the things that, that was probably the, my mind, one of the most fascinating biology physics combination moments. And it shows, I think, how science fiction writers like Jules Verne can be very creative because he, they knew of bioluminescence, algae. Mm, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they had that general concept that this could work. And when you think about it, um, a large part of our recent sort of scientific history has been trying to make LEDs that light in the right spectrums and look natural. And basically to mimic something that biology seems to have been able to do, which is find the chemicals that have the right transitions to glow in the right wavelengths so we can see. So I, I just like that. I like the bio side of it. I like the connection to the physics of how light works and how you get light of different wavelengths. And you don't need the sunlight to charge it up. Yeah, I mean, all of nature's really dark places have all sorts of different critters that emit light for various purposes like if you look at the deep sea environments Mm -hmm. there's you know all sorts of weird things that glow and shimmer and in caves like you know when when you're in these dark environments there's a lot of animals that just are blind so having light no longer is like a camouflage issue but it becomes a way to signal to the the few things that can see and it's a really powerful thing and i think it's pretty likely that any cave system like this would have something that glows in the dark. No, I really liked it. And it brings up another question of how would this environment, this inner earth environment, really affect the animals? And, and not only the animals, just the flora and the fauna, right? So one of the things they come across are these gigantic 
toadstools like this fungus. Yeah, right. So I, I looked this up. So, so toadstools that large don't exist outside of Willy Wonka's factory. And those were made out of candy. So those don't really exist. And even if they cut them down, the stalks would be extremely rubbery and wouldn't make a great raft. So, uh, but outside of that, toadstools can actually get pretty big. There's there's one, uh, it's A. Gallica, and it's the size of the Mall of America. So it's it's huge, but it's underground. As far as fruiting bodies, they don't get that big. But would any of that change with these um, with these different physical conditions? Dennis, I'm going to ask you that question first. Well, certainly having a, if you truly were going very close to the center and gravity started changing, then yes, of course you're going to be able to get bigger because really it's gravity and the force of gravity on your physical structure that limits the size of whether it's elephants, trees. You know, this is why whales are the biggest mammals because they're actually taking advantage of buoyant forces in the ocean, so gravity's not as bad. So at the basic level, yes. And I like that they picked mushrooms because I believe, taking a risk on biology here, they don't need light the same way other plants do. So growing in the caverns, I, I thought it was cool that basically we just ran into mushrooms. We can talk later about the dinosaurs that are carnivores and what they're eating, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Den's right. Mushrooms don't need light. I remember one of them says... How are they growing so big without sun? It's like mushrooms, they, they don't, they just, they just rot away <laughs> organic material. Right. They don't, they don't use the sun at all. Mushrooms are just doing what mushrooms do. That's how they get so big. They just eat dead stuff. They're the third, you know, they're the, they're the last part of the circle of life. It's very important. The cleanup crew, they come in and like, like a hovercraft in Logan's run, they come in and basically dissolve everything that's left of the organic matter, right? For a little, I like that connection, exactly. Dan. You like that? So as we go down, so the mushrooms aren't that big of a deal. I do want to mention it is actually very weird to stumble across random mushrooms unless you're in Wonderland. I don't know why they're just eating random mushrooms. Some are pretty dangerous to human beings. I don't know why they did that, but for another a question for another day. Can, can I ask a question, Dan? Yeah, of course. So maybe that's what the duck was for to test the food that you came across. I really could not figure <laughs> out, <laughs> except for the obvious love the one man had for the duck. Right. That was... I have to say, one of my favorite parts of going on an expedition, right after where was all the stuff, what was the duck doing? <laughs> I mean, he loved that as Gertrude, Gertrude, by the way. Show yeah. some respect. Yes, thank yeah. you. Um, but I love the duck, and it, it was adorable. But number one, incredibly difficult to have on an expedition. But number two, from a filming standpoint, they could have a live duck on screen <laughs> for the entire movie. I don't know. That would have gotten written out immediately in today's <laughs> <Yeah>. world <laughs> or made CGI, one of the two. So that's a good question. But so as we go down there, they encounter a, a large ocean and ginormous uh, reptiles. So let's start with the ocean first. Is that possible? Is it possible to have a, a body of water that big inside of the earth? Uh, ben, I'm gonna ask you first. So, I mean, there are, there's, there are underground water bodies on the earth. <laughs> you know, we, we talk about these uh, artesian, you know, aquifers and things like that, right? We talk about groundwater. But it's not an ocean like we think. It it's more like a a mix of like sand and water and dirt and water down there. There's no real like cavern that's you know full of water that you know as you drain it, it you know there's like spiky uh, stalactites you know left right. exposed yeah, yeah, yeah. over the pool. <laughs> you know that's yeah. not what groundwater is. But there is lots of water because. The water's got to go somewhere, and not all the water in the world ends up in lakes and rivers and oceans. Like some of it's underground. 
What's, what I thought was interesting to see is the waves. Like, where's the wind coming from that's driving the waves in a closed environment like that? I guess there could be thermal heating and thermal, um, you know, currents from the fact that you're somehow in the center of the earth and there's water. <laughs> well, they also have the magnetic, they're coming by the magnetic pole. I don't know if that has any effect on water because water does have a charge, right? Well, water is a little diamagnetic or yeah. very diamagnetic. So it could be impacted oh, by the magnetism. Fancy not words a, there, not, Denon. I thank you. Not, not, a, not a bad guess, Dan. Um, or I mean, analysis. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> there it is. However, I do think, I, I'm kind of with Ben. I was watching the water carefully and though I'm not an expert, it really behaved like water on the surface of the earth in many ways. And, I, and one thing I was thinking about that would be kind of, I hate to say this, now all my students are going to get nervous. A fun assignment to give to students is if you had a structure that was a shell that was a little hollow that had water on the inside and a moon, would you get the tides and ocean and motion of the you know, waves I mean, some of that's wind-driven. Some of that's just coming from the tidal motions and the shape. So I, I think that could be a fun um, fluid dynamics problem for an advanced graduate student just to, like, torture them. But my, my guess is it did not um, move in the way that it would actually move if you were deep underground. Yeah. No, that makes that makes sense. I can understand yeah. that. Um, uh, my favorite is the, I like the magnetic part, but that could possibly have nothing to do with anything. I just like the idea of there being the magnetic center in the middle of <laughs> where they were. They were literally rafting through the yes. magnetic center. Uh, so let's talk about these reptiles as we close up here, because this is I love this. You know, I love this idea of dinosaurs. Everyone does. You know, Ben mentioned that these look like uh, the metrodons. Well, the they metrodons. don't. They say they they say dimetrodons. So oh, do they? I yeah, and these, that, yeah. these are expert scientists, so they would right, know. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Sir Oliver knew every animal and how to deal with it. Sir Oliver knew everything, <laughs> yeah. which is really impressive for being a geologist, let's just say. <laughs> well, so let me tell you this stuff. This stuff's really cool. So dimetrodons are really interesting because they're considered a dinosaur by, in a colloquial sense, but they actually went extinct 40 million years before dinosaurs. They're actually more closely related to mammals than reptiles. And my first real thought was, how could they support themselves? And it turns out kimono dragons, which are reptiles, uh, they actually do this cool thing where if they encounter a male of the same size, they'll wrestle and the victor will eat the loser most of the times. And they also tend to eat their young as well. So my guess is the reptiles would eat themselves or they would feed on themselves basically, or the giant mushrooms. But my question to you guys is, how much is required to sustain a, a can, can an animal that big exist under under the physical conditions that we've laid out? And B, how do they sustain themselves? Uh, Denny, I'm going to go to you first. Well, I think, as we said, if you're really down low and you can imagine this actually existed from a gravity point of view, you could be pretty big and be comfortable. I really think, you know, this is this is a little bit interesting. I It's. I wonder how much the whole mixing of the atmosphere and the fact that we're at the surface really helps life of the type we have exist. Mm -hmm. And I'd be real curious, yeah. you're, you're cut off from a lot of mixing unless there's just a lot of air vents, which we discover there is the channel through the volcano at the end. Uh, so there is some connection to the surface, obviously. They came through a channel, they, they go up back through a channel. So maybe that's enough mixing to make it happen. But there's a lot going on on the surface. 
because you have a lot of mixing in the atmosphere that I think we forget about. And I just don't know how big of a role that plays, but I'm, I'm betting there's that. And there was very, very little biodiversity down there, Dan. So I'm, right. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. a little worried about the survival mechanisms when you, when you take that into account. Yeah, Makes sense to me. There's there's two issues I see. One is by being under the ground, you're not getting solar energy, so you have the problem of what is the primary source of energy for this ecosystem? Because for the surface of Earth, it's the sun. The sun is what makes everything happen. The but if you're underground, I mean, you could potentially have geothermal as a source. Um, you know, we see the lizards like in the lava room. And we know that there are deep sea creatures that are totally separated from the sun and get their energy by living on like these geothermal vents. Like that's a thing that happens in nature. Um, so th that's a possibility. But I'd, I'd want to see like something they're eating besides each other because you need, <laughs> you, you need something, you need coming something into else. The system. It can't be right. a totally <laughs> closed single uh, system like that. It doesn't work from a thermodynamic standpoint. No, that's fair. I mean, I'm guessing they didn't show us everything because yeah. as you mentioned, there are lots of, there are lots of micro um, biomes inside of the, the earth. There's all these little environments yeah. and these little food chains that exist and nature kind of figures it out, right? So I, I think you're right. I think that there are some producers someplace and they're getting their energy from somewhere yeah. and miraculously, Nature figures it out, yeah. so I think it is probably possible. Let's talk about this volcanic shaft. How do would this work? They basically jump into it in, in a large Atlantis created ceramic plate. So, is first of all, it, obviously, if you used like a hot air balloon, it'd make it a lot easier if they had some kind of sheet or something. But are the forces powerful enough to, from a physics standpoint, then are they powerful enough to lift a ceramic plate with four people in it outside uh, through the vent? So I was real curious about this because I couldn't quite remember how it happened. And, and I think in, in the version we're not talking about, I'm trying to remember now if it was lava or air. Um, and, and, and what I realized is fundamentally they went with lava pushing them up. Um, mm. And, and yeah. with that happening, I, I think you know, th there's other issues of survival, but simply getting the four bodies up um, <laughs> becomes less of a problem because we know lava – I mean, now, again, we're making an assumption that they're not necessarily all the way at the center. I, I'm going to add that as my caveat. But, you know, if you're basically being pushed by lava that was going to flow up and out anyway, to be honest, the pressures involved, the, the four bodies were probably not that much of a challenge. I found it fascinating how perfectly smooth and cylindrical the tube they were going up is. That was, you know, a neat work of geology there because <laughs> I don't think anything's quite that perfect. Right, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that the shield was lava-proof, right? You kind of, I guess, suspect because it survived the fall of Atlantis, which probably had a lot of lava going on at the time. So there was maybe a natural, a, a natural selection or an unnatural selection of materials that survived the first lava explosion of Atlantis are safe to use in the second lava explosion getting out. Makes sense to me. Ben, does that work for you? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that makes sense for how the shield could, could keep them safe. I mean, the real thing is like that's you know volcanoes don't really work that way. Uh, you know, there's it's not like it's empty and all of a sudden like lava shows up like a water fountain. You know, like <laughs> the the lava is yeah, yeah. like all the way up the volcano all the time. Like you can't just like 
slide in at the bottom and not have lava on top of you too. So that part I'm a little nervous about. Well, I would say, Ben, what you had here was a sealed off old shaft. There's obviously lava everywhere else up to the top, except the lucky shaft they used. Mm. That's what I'm going with. All right. The lucky shaft. Uh, <laughs> I like that term. Um, all right. Let me. So we're going to close up here. I, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about. I'm going to put a little errors, additions, and omissions section here. So let me just fire these at you. Things that I saw in this movie that I want to talk about, but we're not going to. First of all, the thing that sets them on their path is a plumb bob surrounded in lava. I don't know how many people nowadays would even know what a plumb bob is, <laughs> much less use it as a way to send a message to someone on the other side of the earth. Uh, I love that there's the, that a duck clucks out, uh, basically taps out Morse code in the funniest comedic scene in the movie. Um, I love their outfits that look like like a dandy wearing a golf outfit. And there's lots of fun steampunky stuff in this. And that a shaft of light, much like Raiders of the Lost Ark, shows the entrance at a very specific day shows the entrance to the cave and how they get to the center of the earth. Um, very smog-like, uh, very like from The Hobbit, um, smog's uh, uh, treasure trove. That's how they find it. And finally, I love that they must, th that they, they find someone in their midst who has murdered somebody and they must find them guilty or not guilty. So they put together, they feel it's their civic duty to put together a quick little jury. Lots of fun stuff in this movie. Uh, do you guys have any errors and omissions before we close up? Um, so I had a couple fun things. One is I absolutely love Edinburgh. It's one of my favorite cities to visit. Mm -hmm. So seeing it set and started in Edinburgh was great. But what I also love is Edinburgh is one of the places where particularly during things like the Enlightenment and other periods, people actually did just go to pubs and listen to intellectuals talk about stuff. So to have the scientists celebrated in Edinburgh was, was sweet for me. I, I, I really like that connection. I already mentioned the duck. I just love the duck. I mean, it, it, how, how, anytime I go exploring now, I'm going to have to find a duck. It's just clearly the thing to do. To. And I also loved the whole, I, first of all, I love the trial, Dan, great point there, but the whole exchange about being bourgeoisie or not. Um, mm -hmm. When he yeah. throws the salt in the <laughs> yeah, guy's yeah. face and goes, I guess that was a bourgeoisie trick. Yeah, um, yeah. That was the whole sort of anti-communism moment and undertone was, was fun. I love that. Ben, what do you have? Anything I, before we go? I think the interesting thing to me is like, when you get to the center and you're on this ocean, first off, why is why, how does the ocean get you to the center? Like, where did they start from? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. That, and then why is there a whirlpool in the middle? And if they go through the whirlpool, how did they end up back on the beach? Like, <laughs> where did that <laughs> take them? Uh, <laughs> Those are really good like, questions. Like, did they man. get sucked further down and now they're on a different beach? Or was it the same beach? Like, I, I would like to know. <laughs> I think they got pulled through the center of the earth and they're on a beach on the opposite side of the earth that's identical in a mirror way, you know. Uh, kind of, okay. Kind of like, Although, like, that's my guess. Not all the way because they only got as far as Italy, right? <laughs> right, yeah. But it's. I think that I'm guessing it's an alternate, almost like an alternate universe. Yeah. Um, so th this is this can't be it. If we've missed anything, you got to let us know. You can get in touch with the show. We're on Twitter at FGGBTPod, on Facebook at FGGBT. But you can come and get in touch with us if you have a beef with us or you want to get our advice on maybe you're trying to make some incredible equipment and you want someone's help. There's no better person than our enigmatic engineer. Ben Seepser. Ben, how can people get in touch with you? Get in touch with me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B S I 
E-P-S-E-R. Denon, where can people find you? So people can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Denon Michael. Just flip my name. And then on Facebook, it's Prof Denon Michael. That's the way to do it. If you want to get in touch with me, I am at Analytical Mastermind on Facebook, at Daniel J. Glenn on Twitter, and at the Daniel J. Glenn on Instagram. So if you're planning your own journey to the center of the earth or to anywhere, basically, and you need some gadgets, gizmos, gear-based technologies, this is the show. But remember, we're giving you lots of information on some pretty powerful science fiction technology. You, you got to be careful with this stuff. You have some responsibility. You want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. Until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glenn Co. production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, F triple that's f triple where you will find links to everything you're looking for all the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page links to our social media are right there and if you go to the top of the page you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety. You can find the links that we talked about, the in real life examples that we brought to you, including videos. And of course, we've got each episode has its own YouTube video. You can watch it there if you prefer. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.